In the name of God, creator, redeemer, and giver of life, amen. Good morning. I really love that organ intro, man. That's awesome. Thank you, David. Beautiful. So uh, this morning we meet once again these two sisters named Martha and Mary who have become such familiar symbols to us of these two different ways of being in the world. Martha, the active one, busily preparing the meal, setting the table, cleaning the kitchen while her sister, the slacker, Mary, is happily sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to his teaching. When Martha complains to Jesus that Mary isn't helping out, Jesus gently, kind of condescendingly, scolds her. Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things, etc. Which makes this the most deeply resented story in the Gospels. I know people who proclaim Jesus as their Lord and Savior with the utmost sincerity. Jesus knew no sin, they say. He lived a life of perfection. Every word that fell from his lips was a pearl of wisdom, except for that horrible thing he said to Martha. How could he have been so insensitive? Why was he so willing to encourage that slacker? So, unfortunately, the first thing that we have to say is that this story has inspired countless number of mansplaining sermons in which women are lectured at by men as to their proper roles as followers of Jesus. According to this model, they have two choices. They can be good Marthas, spending their days cooking and doing dishes for the menfolk, or they can join a convent and be like Mary sitting in breathless adoration. I really wish I didn't need to say this, but I probably do. This is not a story about appropriate gender roles. The message of this story would work equally well if its main characters were Mark and Michael instead of Martha and Mary. And let's even say it would work just as well if they were in conversation with Mary Magdalene, just to continue the M alliteration, thank you. But this is a story that quite naturally reflects the gender roles of its time, of course, and then we are actually free. This is true. We are actually free to decide for ourselves whether those roles make any sense to us or not. The second thing that needs to be said is If the teacher in the story were, say, Mary Magdalene instead of Jesus, maybe we'd we'd have seen more dialogue, you know, more co-equal conversation going on rather than the sage on the stage, as a friend of mine puts it, the guru sitting in regal serenity dominating the entire conversation. Maybe if a woman had been the teacher, she would have helped Mary find her voice instead of letting her just sit meekly at the master's feet. Maybe Mary would have learned how to speak up for what she needs, maybe even stand up to her dominating sister. And third, you got to wonder, what kind of lesson this story would have taught if Jesus had 
just, you know, gotten up off his tukas and helped out in the kitchen a little bit. <laughs> right? I mean, would that be so much to ask? Well, this is a fun sport. Who doesn't love to complain about the Bible in this way? You know, just with imposing our modern ethics onto the literature of the ancient Near East. But, you know, just to be fair to the Bible for a second, we do have to remember that all of this was written way before Gloria Steinem was born. And I agree that's too bad because Jesus would probably have learned a lot from her. Anyway, we all love to hate this story because the truth is that we are, and we always have been, a nation of Marthas. Way back in 1840, Alexis de Tocqueville wrote that Americans pursue their own welfare with feverish ardor. He described this strange unrest of so many happy people restless in the midst of abundance. Restless in the midst of abundance. I love that term. What a fine phrase to describe America. In other words, we are a culture of Marthas worried and distracted by many things. We work more hours per year than any other major industrial nation, driven by this deep anxiety that somebody somewhere is working harder than us. And now that we have iPhones and everything that goes with it, the email, the games, the apps, all the rest of it, we aren't even at rest when we're at rest. We're FaceTiming, we're Facebooking, we're tweeting, we're texting, we're never spending more than a few minutes doing any one thing. The average American is now a master multitasker. 18 to 24-year-olds now are, spend, are sending out an average of 3,800 texts per month. 3,800 texts per month, an average of 128 per day. And their parents are not far behind. 30 to 50 texts a day. So, worried and distracted by many things, Martha was an amateur compared to us. So it was a little over 10 years ago, this writer Nicholas Carr noticed that he was having a harder and harder time reading books. In fact, he found that he could no longer sit still long enough for any kind of deep reflection on a single topic. He'd be sitting down with a book halfway through the first paragraph and suddenly be overwhelmed by the need to check his Twitter feed or Google a random thought or browse his Pinterest page or, you know, send out a text or whatever. He wondered then if his brain was actually changing as a result of his use of the media. And so he started looking into the latest brain science on this subject. And it turns out, of course, that yes, he is, his brain is changing. And so he ended up writing this book called The Shallows, in which he documents the quite alarming fact that our technology is literally changing our brains. The more distracted we become, the more shallow our thinking becomes, 
and to use his, his language, the better we get at multitasking, the worse we are at thinking deeply. He said, quote, the internet pushes us to a skimming and scanning form of thinking. What the internet doesn't provide us any opportunity to do is attentive thinking, the types of thinking like contemplation, like introspection, like reflection, and a lot of our deepest thoughts and certainly our deepest perceptual knowledge only emerges when we're able to pay attention to one thing. These observations from Nicholas Carr 10 years ago now seem almost quaint, don't they? Our brains have already changed to the point that some of us don't even care anymore about what we've lost. We're becoming incapable of doing that one thing that has come naturally to artists and writers and teachers and students and leaders since the advent of literacy. This capacity to sit quietly in the presence of a book or a teacher or a complex problem and think critically about it. Which is, of course, why our political climate has become so sensationalistic and unreflective. These days, major issues of public policy, issues of war and peace are being determined by which soundbite or image is able to capture our attention for the 24-hour news cycle. But of course, it's not all bad, of course, you know. The internet is making us better at some things. We're becoming more interactive, for one thing. That's a good thing. More collaborative, more democratic. Uh, we're less inclined to sit politely still while some middle-aged white guy lectures at us from a podium. I don't know. Maybe that's good. I'm a little biased on that topic. But the point is this. It's not that Mary is better than Martha any more than reading a book is necessarily better than watching an excellent film. This is not a dualistic either-or proposition here. Both modes of being have their place. But if we're actually losing our capacity for one mode over the other, if we're becoming a world entirely composed of the Martha brain, incapable of critical reasoning and contemplative engagement, if the merry side of our brains becomes virtually inaccessible to us, then I submit we are regressing as a civilization and we will have lost an extremely important element of our humanity. T.S. Eliot, almost a hundred years ago, predicted this state of affairs when he wrote, where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? And where is the knowledge we have lost in information? Where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge and where is the knowledge we have lost in information? More and more every day we're drowning in information while losing our capacity to sort and retain and transform that information into knowledge. And as for wisdom, well, where is wisdom today? 
This is where the institution of organized religion actually comes in handy. Because here at Trinity Cathedral, we are one of the dwindling few institutions that continues to promote and encourage a culture of reading and critical thinking and contemplation. And it seems that there's this longing in our culture for that merry side of our brains to be restored. Trinity is doing its part to create the space for that restoration. For example, yesterday, we held the latest in our series of monthly mini-retreats. This is this incredibly audacious, wonderfully subversive thing that we're doing. We actually sit in silence together for 25 minutes, and not just once, but three times over the course of a three-hour session together. We're attending to our breath. We're sinking deeply into the presence of God. We're listening deeply to stillness and silence. And then we turn to one another and listen deeply to one another. And people are responding as more than 75 people have been showing up for these retreats each month, which is shattering our expectations. And this is thanks to you. Trinity's culture of reading and reflection continues to thrive thanks to you. More and more classes and book groups are cropping up. We're sharing everything from murder mysteries to classic novels to wisdom theology to poetry to ceramics and calligraphy. This fall, we're adding a regular book group to our Sunday morning offerings, and we're expanding our Wednesday evening programs to accommodate the larger crowds that are coming. Never has Trinity's mission to the world been more important than it is now. And you are making it possible. So your support for spiritual formation programs is outstanding and it continues to grow. And I could not be more excited for the mission of this church. So Martha, Martha, Jesus is speaking to all of us. Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. But in this we can take heart, that our brains are not hardwired. We have this thing, this blessing, this thing called neural plasticity. We are able to change and adapt and grow as the yearning of our souls finds its voice. We can find balance between our internal Marthas and Marys, just as we can find a home here in this blessed community of presence and peace. Thanks be to God for you and for this institution that you support. Because of you, Christ comes alive in our own day in remarkably important ways. Somebody say amen. amen. Thank you.